This podcast is sponsored by Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. For more than 45 years, the writers, editors, and growing experts at Acres USA have cultivated information about modern farming practices that do not rely on toxic pesticides and toxic herbicides. We share that information through our monthly magazine, our online bookstore, events around the country, and through online articles and podcasts like this. If you're a new farmer or have been farming for a lifetime, you know there's always more to learn. New research into soil life, gut health, and nutrient and mineral applications are changing the way we look at farm management, and the most important part, the future of our soil. At Acres USA, we are committed to finding the experts to teach you these methods and practices. Learn more at www.acresusa.com or by calling 1-800-355-5313. Folks outside the U.S. and Canada can call us at 970-392-4464. If your business would like to advertise or sponsor the Tractor Time podcast, spots are available. Contact us today to find out more, and thank you for listening to Tractor Time. We are in a revolution, but it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Good day and welcome to Tractor Time, a podcast brought to you by Acres USA. My name is Ryan Slaybaugh and I will be your host again for our 20th episode. And since this is a big round number, we thought we'd make it a little extra special. We're going to have double the interviews that we normally have on today. We've got two special guests on today. Uh, we should have a lot of fun and it should be really interesting. I hope you guys have as much fun listening as I did interviewing them. Uh, it truly was a, a phenomenal uh, talk that lasted a little bit more than an hour between the two of them. So hope you can give us some time and really dig in with us as we get into the interviews. Uh, who are our guests today? You're probably asking. Um, both live together in Seattle. Both are writers, advocates, and change agents, and both are quite brilliant as well. Uh, we're going to be speaking with biologist Ann Bickley and geologist David Montgomery. Uh, You might know them from co-authoring The Hidden Half of Nature, The Microbial Roots of Life and Health. First, we're going to talk to David Montgomery this morning. Uh, David is a writer, geologist, professor, researcher uh, who will set the stage for Anne's deep dive into the soil life and soil science. Um, David is a recognized genius, uh, or at least somebody who's been recognized as the closest thing to it, if you're skeptical of that word. Uh, he's a professor of Earth and Space Scientists, Sciences excuse me, at the University of Washington in Seattle and is a member of the University's Research Center. In 2008, he received a MacArthur Fellowship, uh, generally known as the Genius Grant, for his work as a researcher and a writer. His early work began in topics of topography and geology. You might have seen him all over television after the tragic Washington State landslide in 2014. Uh, and since then, he's published books connecting the ideas of healthy soil and healthy civilizations. Uh, again, he's a co-author with Anne of The Hidden Half of Nature. And his most recent work, Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life, uh, was released in 2017. Uh, all of his books are available at the U- Acres USA store at www.acresusa.com. But that's not why we're here today. We're really here just to talk to David and welcome him to the Tractor Time podcast. So welcome, David Montgomery. Hey, thanks, Ryan. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the work you do every day. Uh, we mentioned it in the intro. You are a professor of Earth and Space Sciences at the University of Washington, Seattle. Um, so you teach, and what do you teach? Yeah, so um, I'm, a, I'm a, a flavor of a geologist known as a geomorphologist. And what that basically means 
is that I teach about the processes that structure and shape the surface of the earth, topography, landscapes, landforms. Um, and so I, I spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, what causes erosion in natural systems, but also how that works in, uh, in systems that are impacted by human activity, whether it's forestry, whether it's farming, uh, or construction activity. Um, so a hundred years ago, I might have been called like a physical geographer or a topographer, but the modern term is geomorphologist. Uh, what it really means is someone who works on the geology of Earth's surface, which is important to us because that's, after all, where we live. And what we do to it ends up shaping how the world works around us. And, um, and we can either get in trouble when we do things wrong that places us at risk, or there's smart ways to do uh, things that take advantage of how the surface of the Earth works and uses that uh, for our benefit. That makes sense. I will try not to say the word geomorphology so many times in the podcast because that one scares me. But that's <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. We got it. We got it out of the way. <laughs> right. Appreciate that. Uh, the, the the stuff you're teaching, this stuff, it, it shouldn't be hard to explain why we're having you on today to a group of growers and farmers that obviously we we deal with the life and the and the and, and the soil and the geology and the mineralization and all of these these things. Um, but your work as an author really kind of volleys between those two major subjects. It seems like the kind of the topography and geology, and then the connection between soil health and healthy societies. Uh, where did you find you were so passionate about these areas, uh, and, and how did you become so passionate about those areas? Well, you know, um, in, in becoming passionate about uh, geomorphology, just sort of understanding the nature of the surface of the Earth, that goes back to you know, childhood and being interested and fascinated by maps and just the lay of the land. And I, mean, I grew up in California. I loved uh, uh, hiking in the Sierra Nevada and the coast ranges. Um, I've had a, a love of topography for a long time that really kind of blossomed in college in terms of being realizing that, well, I could actually study this as a science and it's really cool and it's fun and I get to be outside and I can make a living doing this. Um, I got into thinking about connections to the soil much later because in college, training as a geologist to study landforms, um, you know, I was often advised to, you know, ignore the soil, look at the rocks underneath by, by professors. And I ended up writing my second popular science book. Was, it was called Dirt, the Erosion of Civilizations. And it was in writing that book that I really started to dive into thinking about the soil, realizing that the soil was not just the stuff that covered up rocks, but it was this um, you know, incredibly valuable natural resource that we have on this planet that had implications for the, the, the ability of the land to sustain human societies, you know, at scales much bigger than a single farm over long periods of time. So I kind of came to looking at farming practices and soils and how we treat the land from a very different perspective than I think most people involved in, say, the modern regenerative agriculture movement um, came from. I came from thinking about it over broad time scales um, and from how you make and erode soils. And in researching that book, I thought it would be fun to look at archaeology and what happened to, you know, like the Greeks and the Romans and the relation, their relationship with the land, what we could understand about that. And I came away from that writing that book really realizing that societies that did not take care of their soil did not last, did not pass the test of time. And you can sort of go right there. I sort of went around the world cataloging societies that did that and um, spun the story up in dirt. And that really got me into thinking of, um, you know, 
what are we doing to the world's soils today with modern agriculture, and are we repeating some of the, the problems uh, and not learning the lessons of, this, of things that have plagued and undermined past societies? And that then sort of kept me look, going into looking at how to fix the soil problem, as we might call it, how to actually restore fertility to degraded land, how to maintain the productivity of farms over time scales that geologists would consider to be sustainable. And we have a pretty high bar for that in, in thinking about geologic time. Um, and that led to the hidden half of nature that Ann and I wrote and to the more recent growing revolution. So it's a sort of a long story that's gone through there, but my, my evolution came from thinking about um, how you build soils from a geological perspective and then started to overlay the land use, the farming, the societal, and then the, the economic and social on top of that when you sort of put the whole thing together to figure out, well, what would it take to actually farm intensively but not degrade the land that we all depend on to feed us? And that's where this, this trio of books that Ann and I sort of look at as uh, our dirt trilogy, as we joke, jokingly call it, um, starts off with the, the look at degradation through the dirt book and ends up being very optimistic about our ability to restore fertility to the world's farmland, do it remarkably fast, and in ways that are actually profitable for farmers. So it's a long evolution um, in my own thinking through this process of you know, weekends and uh, evenings and summer, um, summer research time to actually dig into this stuff and write it. Um, but as, it, as you'll talk with, with Anne about, I think, later, um, there was also lessons from home as she restored soil, the fertility of the soil in our yard uh, to make a garden uh, in Seattle. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I'll have to ask her about that. That's, uh, uh, that's really fascinating. The, you, you mentioned when you were, you were talking there about traveling the world, and it, it seems like you've been to just about every major continent and looked at uh, this, these subject matters. Um, what did you learn from that experience? Or, I know you had to learn a ton. That's probably, th what, three books are worth. But what are, the, <laughs> what are the major takeaways and you know, what commonalities did you find across those regions that uh, you know, maybe make us realize we're not so different? Well, you know, the, the, um, the biggest commonality that I found was that if you look back at different societies at different times in history, those that really degraded their land, that you know, either eroded off their topsoil, as, say, the Syrians and the Libyans did, uh, or that really degraded their soil organic matter, as has happened in other areas around the Mediterranean and in the American Southeast, those societies that did that, really sort of started the clock ticking on their own longevity. And it's not like people completely disappeared from those corners of the world, but they, but they left their descendants impoverished. Their, their civilizations were undermined. Their um, ability to support large populations were undermined. And that was sort of a common thread that played out in this time again and again, whether in Asia, the South Pacific, the Americas, uh, the Middle East, Europe. Um, there were a few exceptions, but they were they were sort of the exceptions that helped to prove the rule. Because when you, when you think about societies that really uh, uh, lasted a long time with, with tillage-based agriculture, with, with plowing, which turned out to be the, um, uh, essentially the, I don't know, if a nonfiction book can have a bad guy, uh, the bad guy in the dirt book was the plow, because mm -hmm. that was the other common element, was that societies that disturbed the soil to plant, that really used uh, some form of tillage as uh, weed suppression, resulted in longer-term erosion and soil degradation that really undermined their ability to keep producing food on the same land, which is 
you know, if you're going to sustain farming as the foundation of a civilization, you can't reduce your ability to grow food over time as your population grows. Those things work against each other. Yet that's what we're doing today at a global scale with modern conventional agriculture. Um, there was just a study that came out in 2015, I believe it was, from the UN that argued that we're basically degrading 0.3% of our agricultural production capacity globally each and every year due to soil ongoing soil loss and degradation. So we're repeating the problem that ancient societies uh, suffered from and from which their descendants continue to suffer from in various parts of the world. And we're doing that at a global scale right now, but it's playing out slowly because that 0.3% number, you know, that means it takes three years to, for a percent change. That means in, um, what, in 100 years, we're going to basically have lost another third of our agricultural production capacity. 100 years is, is not a policy-friendly time frame. It makes the soil degradation problem somewhat akin to climate change in that it happens slowly, but those little changes each and every year eventually add up to big differences. Um, and that's where I got really um, interested in thinking about how we could um, change the way that we farm so as to build fertile soil as a consequence of farming practices and thereby solve one of the humanity's longest running problems. And I went from being a bit of a pessimist about that when I first wrote the Dirt Book, looking back at the, the problems of, of history, to now being very much an optimist now that I've met farmers around the world, as I talk about in Growing a Revolution, who've not only figured out how to build soil fertility, they've already done it. They've demonstrated it can be done and done rapidly and profitably. Um, and now I've lost track of your original question, so I'll kick it back to you. <laughs> no, that, uh, you, you covered it. Which I asked you a big question, so no, that, that, that I deserved that. Um, the, uh, uh, you, you hit on this, that we're looking at this worldwide event right now of you know, soil depletion and erosion and contamination, uh, much of it our own doing. Um, and you know, we're talking about it affecting food supply and populations. Obviously, we're, we're talking about a global scale. Um, as you looked at history, and I remember yeah, I, doing research for this, I found a talk you did in 2011 um, and had some really interesting uh, stories about, you know, even Plato bringing up um, yeah. soil issues with, uh, uh, you know, you know, in, in the B.C. time, you know, thousands of years ago. Uh, what was he writing about then that still is applicable today? And, and have we learned much since then? Yeah, you know, Plato, Plato, I'm glad you brought that up, because I'm, I'm obviously a bit of a history buff, writing these books and so forth, but Plato is the person that I can point to as, you know, maybe the first person who really recognized the potential problem for how people treat their land, influencing how their society might prosper over time. And what he was looking at, as it turns out, well, with the kind of evidence he described in one of his dialogues, um, pointed to things like uh, olive trees that were on the edge of a farmer's field that were standing, you know, a good fraction of a meter, a couple feet up above the surrounding field. And the reason he put together was that the fields had been plowed, but you don't plow under your favorite lunchtime shade tree. And so the tree was protected. The surrounding fields over centuries probably had been deflating. Their soil had been eroding. He looked at the mouths of rivers in, in Greece and looked at you know, the mouth of a river that was draining an undisturbed forest, there wasn't much sediment. But in the neighboring river where the watershed had been cleared and plowed for centuries, there was a big delta building out into the Mediterranean. And he was like, wow, this soil is bleeding off the landscape. 
Uh, he has some sort of nice flowery language uh, that w which he described that. But he basically recognized the connection, and he wrote explicitly that the continued destruction of the soil in Greece would undermine the ability of the government there to support the population needed to raise an army to keep people um, from the east out of invading the country. Um, and so he made that sort of connection between soil security and national security in like the third or fourth century BC. This is not a new problem. <laughs> it's been recognized for a long time. Um, and the kind of erosive event that he was looking at in classical times, archaeologists have now documented had happened, and he was looking at the sort of a Bronze Age erosion event. The previous civilization in that landscape had degraded the land in places, and he was seeing the evidence of that and warning about the long-term consequences. And there's been, you know, various people in the last few hundred years have uh, uh, tried to bring the problem of soil degradation to regional or national attention uh, with varying degrees of success. You know, and the, the most successful example is really what happened in the aftermath of the Dust Bowl in the American South mm -hmm. in the 1930s, which I like to view as one of the, the biggest man-made natural disasters uh, ever, because their same kind of droughts and windstorms had uh, hit that region for several thousand years before the plains were plowed and the bare earth was just ripped, ripped apart by wind. Um, the development of the Soil Conservation Service, now the Natural Resource Conservation Service, and the aftermath of the Dust Bowl um, was really a major national step forward. Uh, and I've been corrected by the people of Iceland when I visited there that the, that the, soil, our, the U.S. Soil Conservation Service was not the first National Soil Conservation Service. The, the um, Icelandic uh, people had one a little before us, a couple decades before us. Um, but the problem of soil degradation hasn't been completely solved. It's, it's one that um, we made some progress on in the 20th century, but it's a problem that's been long recognized, long argued about, and unfortunately, more often than not, not really addressed effectively at a national scale. It's, it, it begs the question, has there ever been a time or a civilization that did have it figured out that you've discovered in your research? You know, there, there, there were a couple that I, I ran into, um, and there, there's... Um, uh, the, 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 be the best long-term example of, of plow-based or tillage-based agriculture uh, lasting for a long time are on the big river floodplains of the ancient world. So like on the, the Tigris and the Euphrates in, in Mesopotamia, now southern Iraq, or the Nile in Egypt, the, the Indus and the Brahmaputra the, in India, and the rivers of the great rivers of lowland China. Those are places where societies were able to, to keep plowing and maintain uh, the productivity of the soil for a long time. Although in Mesopotamia, they had horrible salinization problems for issues I talk about in the dirt book, but, but we don't need to get into here. The common thing here is that they were able to keep plowing their landscapes because they were growing food on floodplains of big rivers. And if you look at the problem of eroding your soil off of sloping land, um, you know the problem is that you're eroding it off faster than it's rebuilding. Mm. On a floodplain, the river helps you by flooding and delivering silt and sand um, you know, every year or, or every few years that can help rebuild soil that might have been eroded off. And floodplains tend to be flat, so erosion rates are pretty low to begin with. So there's, these, there's certain landscapes, certain geographies that are, that are pretty resilient to the problem of the plow, the problem of accelerated soil erosion. Um, but those are really kind of the places, the exceptions that illustrate the general rule, that if you're not in an environment where 
uh, nature is rebuilding the soil very fast, then with the, with the techniques that we've tended to use over the course of agricultural history, um, we degrade the soil real fast. So there's those examples. But there's also a few places that actually really got building soil uh, right. Um, the, there was an island in the South Pacific called Tikopia that was studied by anthropologists back in the 30s or 40s, if I recall correctly. And they, they turned their whole little island into a tropical paradise that had uh, a perennial polyculture, so a multi-storied canopy. It's kind of what you would, um, um, uh, uh, I forget the right uh, analogy today, but it's kind of like they, they basically were adopt, had adopted permaculture oh, right. <laughs> um, on, on the scale of their whole island. Um, but they also, and they were able to build soil fertility and maintain it for a long time but they dealt with their population pressure by every few generations sending a bunch of young people off to go find their own island, which is you know, a, a difficult thing to think about doing at a planetary scale. So right. they got the soil part right, but they didn't get the population part right. Um, then there's the, the Inca and their terraces in South America. They, they would take their uh, household wastes and organic matter back to their, their terraced vegetable fields and rebuilt the organic matter. And so with terracing, they shut erosion down. And by recycling organic matter, they built up the quality of their soil. You can still go there and find uh, these terraces that have been uh, farmed for 1,500, 2,000 years. And the soil quality in those, in those terraces is better than the native soil that, that has not been farmed. So yeah, there's, good, there's examples of people who have done sort of the right thing um, the, the natives of, um, of the Amazon built really fertile soils with their, uh, the terra preta soils, the black earth soils, um, that, through the use of biochar. Um, and again, it was recycling of organic matter and re, re, returning nutrients to the land that allowed them to, maintain, to build fertility in an environment where the native soils are actually uh, not very fertile at all. The fertility is held in the, ca the jungle canopy because mm -hmm. it turns over real fast because it's hot and wet and everything gets broken down and decayed real soon after it falls to the forest floor. So what I tried to do and what Ann and I tried to do in, in our books is to look at the generalized lessons. Um, and so I think what we can take from, from what we've been talking about so far is that societies that degrade their soil don't last. It's not a good long-term strategy to degrade your soil. Um, and that societies that re, you know, maintained the fertility of their land or rebuilt the fertility of their land did so by figuring out how to return organic matter to it because um, that was sort of the essence, you know, stopping disturbance of the soil mm. and returning organic matter. And that's the challenge of, okay, how do you do that, whether in a garden uh, or on a large farm? Um, and that's what the, the most recent pair of books really try and wrestle with. We will get to those, I promise, because uh, i got some questions about that. And actually, might as well go ahead and, and go right to it now that I'm thinking about it. Um, the, the most recent book, The Hidden Half of Nature, that you wrote with Anne, um, really focuses on that microbial life in the soil, and that's one of the sub-themes throughout it. Uh, it's, it's something I'm really interested in because how much new research is being exposed in that area and being devoted to that area. Um, it's also really kind of that connect the dots game that we try to play between how do you prove that what you put into the soil ends up in the body and we're learning that this microbial life is one of those vehicles that you can really measure and understand even though we don't understand it as well as we want to at this point but we're learning that it could be a, a, a how we better understand nutrition and, and, the, and the nutritional value of our food. Um, I just said that so did I get that right and uh, what studies are you following out there in this world and kind of what are you learning uh, about this microbial life that uh, farmers should know and consumers should know. Big question. 
Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, in some of the, um, you know, to put the sort of a, a simple point on it, uh, some of the original pioneers of organic agriculture back in the 1930s, people like Sir Albert Howard and Lady E. Balfour, were, were arguing that there were connections between the life in the soil, the microbial life, and they were arguing about rhizobial um, um, fungi in particular, um, but mycorrhizal fungi in particular, sorry, in the rhizosphere, um, that they would connect with plants in ways that help get nutrients, uh, mineral nutrients, out of the soil and into plants and bolster plant health. But they didn't have a mechanism to understand that. In the 30s and 40s, there was very, it was really difficult to actually study microbial life to begin with and really hard to, stud to study microbial ecology. And what the hidden half of nature does is takes a deep dive into the world of microbial ecology, of microbes and micro microbial ecology, with an eye towards thinking about what are the relationships between those communities of organisms that are too small for us to see with our senses. So it's been very difficult for us to study them until we got gene sequencing technology and sort of other new modern techniques to look at them. Um, what are the relationships between those communities and the host organisms? And what we came to realize is that there are far more um, uh, interactions and symbiotic interactions between those communities and the host organisms that are important to the health of the host than we've really re recognized up until very recently. And there's all kinds of articles that have come out in, um, in botanical journals over the last few decades and that have been moved into the realm of looking at the relationship between um, the human microbiome and our health via what's happening in our gut. So what we did in the hidden half is looked at both those systems, the rhizosphere, so the relationship between microbes in the uh, root system of plants, and the human microbiome, and looked at the parallels between those two systems. And what we came up with is that they're basically the same system inside out. You know, little different architecture, a few different species here and there, but the functionalities, the things that the, micro, the microbial communities are doing that benefit the health of the host, are, are very parallel, and, and those things fall into the realm of nutrient acquisition and, um, and provisioning. Um, microbes in the soil, mycorrhizal fungi and bacteria, sometimes together, sometimes just one or the other, are, uh, turn out to be pretty central to getting things like mineral micronutrients out of soil particles into saw and into forms that can be taken up by plants. And in the human gut, there's parallels with the way that um, microbes facilitate the trans the breakdown of organic matter, um, uh, uh, plant foods that we don't have the uh, enzymes to digest. Microbes in our gut do, and they transform that material into stuff we can take up uh, and deliver it across our gut lining in ways that support our health. Um, and there's chemical signaling in both worlds that go on, teeing up the immune system in us, the defense system in plants. Um, and it turns out that these are two-way streets. Uh, in the rhizosphere, for example, plants are putting out um, exudates into the soil, uh, compounds that they essentially drip out of their roots into the soil that include things like uh, proteins, uh, carbohydrates, and we even now have studies that have looked at how fats are being exuded out the roots of plants. And when you think about that, you got carbs, you got proteins, you got fats. That's food that plants are basically pushing out into the soil. And plants have this nice monopoly on photosynthesis. They can manufacture carbohydrates and complex organic compounds, but they actually push out some into the soil to feed the microbes that are doing things in the soil 
that help them get all those other mineral nutrients that the plants can't just grab out of the sky. Um, and so there's the, all these um, sort of connections that a few decades ago would have been considered crazy talk, but now we're starting to understand how those connections actually work, and the science is, is really kind of lining up in ways that supports the insights of some of these early pioneers of organic agriculture, Balfour and Howard and others, who saw a connection. And so one of the projects that Ann and I are working on is to try and look at the evidence for how much does that affect the nutritional quality of the food that we get, and does that then cascade over into influences on human health? I think that's a huge question out there. Um, that, yeah, folks like yourself, and uh, we listened to Dr. Bandana Shiva last year at our conference talk about um, really trying to, to communicate that to the consumer level, and that's where it gets really hard at some point. So I'm wondering, as you talk to farmers and growers and, and go to soil conferences, uh, what kind of information are they looking for that they can then use to help sell their product back to market? You know, how do you take this idea that you're growing soil health, you're growing a better tomato, or you're growing a better ear of corn, um, what is that farmer asking you? Are they able to use that information at this point, or is it still, still new at this point to them? We know there's, there's a couple angles on that, and in, in one of the, the angles um, that I looked at in uh, Growing a Revolution is that most of the farmers I interviewed were actually conventional farmers, mm -hmm. and they were interested in two things. Uh, one, how to actually save money by using less inputs, less fertilizer, less pesticide, less diesel, uh, and then also whether what they were growing by using less of those was higher quality food that they could either sort of brand or market or... Um, and if we separate those two for a moment, let's take the second one first. Um, the people that I ran into who had uh, converted their farms to a more regenerative style of agriculture, so they were, they were hardly using any agrochemicals, um, but weren't necessarily organic, um, they were, had gone the route of branding and then selling um, the food that they produced and doing it at, say, through farmer's markets or, or other types of outlets with direct marketing. Uh, and there have been so some of the folks I talked with there have been very uh, successful at building, essentially building their brand um, and building consumer trust because consumers, once they knew how they were farming, liked what they were doing. And that's the same with, you know, the, the organic food that Ann and I buy from the farmer's market in Seattle. It's the same kind of thing. We know who the farmers are. We like their practices. And we're, we're quite happy eating the food that they produce. Um, so there's, there's that kind of a connection. What, what, one of the things I learned in looking at, into this, though, is that the, uh, there's no guarantee simply that being organic is, is necessarily going to be growing more nutritious food. Right. In general, all other things being equal, it probably is, but as is with so often, all things aren't always equal. Mm -hmm. And so if you have, um, um, say, an organic farm that does a lot of, of tillage, they may be disrupting those mycorrhizal fungi, they may be disrupting soil communities, um, and they may sort of limit how good their soil health can get to through those practices. And right now, there really isn't a consumer label that you could sort of see in a store that you could be 100% confident that that store is, that that product is grown in sort of soil that's as healthy and fertile and, and um, as it could be. Um, because of that sort of difference. So there's an issue there that I think is one that needs some, some attention on the consumer end. But the, you know, the first piece of that is for consumers to be sort of aware of the importance of healthy soil for what the, the, the um, 
quality of what it is that soil will produce uh, and to be interested in demanding that for their food. The other side of it, though, that um, I ran into was that a lot of the farmers that um, at sort of conventional farming conferences I get asked to go to and speak about these issues, a lot of people are very interested in um, the issue of how can they improve the bottom line on their farm? How can they actually um, uh, build, use building soil health so that they can reduce their reliance on tillage, on fertilizers, and on pesticides? And there's been a, I've had a lot of conversations and interviewed a number of people in Growing Revolution who've been very successful uh, at doing that through a combination of three things. They started going to no-till farming, mm -hmm. um, sort of stopping plowing, uh, planting cover crops and using uh, cover crops in their rotation to uh, you know always keep the ground covered with a living plant at all times and living roots in the soil, pushing those exudates out. And then they went to a more diversified crop rotation. You know, it's really hard to build soil health if all you're growing is corn and soybeans and you're doing it with a whole lot of agrochemicals and tillage. Um, so these folks were had shown dramatic improvements in their soil fertility over the course of years to decades by minimizing disturbance, getting carbon in the ground through cover crops, and stimulating the diversity of soil life through a diversity in their rotations. And they had cut their, their expenses for diesel, fertilizer, and pesticide in every case they visited by at least half. And in some cases on the fertilizer and the pesticide, they virtually weaned themselves off of traditional agri conventional agrochemicals. Um, and I started teasing some of them that they were uh, really organic-ish farmers, um, and they might as well get, you know, to go all the way and get certified. Um, but there's a whole host of issues why people may, may or may not want to do that. The thing I found real interesting is that these farmers were able to maintain high yields, do so with less expense, and in all likelihood, they're growing higher quality, more nutrient-dense food. Um, and they're doing it with a smaller environmental footprint, and they were more profitable than their conventional neighbors. That's what really turned me into an optimist on this issue, because let's uh, just say that there's an awful lot of room to change conventional agriculture for the better that adopting those principles could help with. I also think there's lessons for organic farmers in terms of how to improve the fertility of their land by thinking along these lines as well. Um, that that makes sense. I in uh, uh, that I guess therein lies the challenge to our patients, right? That if if we have a si if we have the science to support this, we know that it actually is a simpler. Maybe not, it's a it's a biologically more complex, but it is a simpler system to grow. One, we grew this food this way for for centuries. Uh, we know it actually is a profitable way to farm, and all of that is surrounded by so much misinformation out there. Uh, I speak to a lot of I live in a very conventional ag area, Greeley, Colorado, you're familiar. Uh, I speak mm -hmm. to local groups and that's that's one of the, the questions I get is is it's just impossible to do it any other way than to use toxic chemistry to that we have to do this stuff to be able to survive. And and so when I question on that I get a lot of it just they say that, but you know they don't believe that at some point. They're saying it because they just don't have that alternative behind it of what it, what else could we be doing. So long-winded question is just, and this kind of gets uh, into something you mentioned earlier, is having hope. Uh, what can we do to, you know, if, if the problem really is an information, how do we solve this problem? And, and obviously writing books is one way, but uh, uh, are we making a dent? Are you seeing progress there? Yeah, you know, that that's a great uh, thing. I think there is a major... Um, uh, sort of information gap, uh, and 
I think you you put your finger right on what I might term something like an attitude gap, where um, you know if you talk to folks who are deeply into conventional agriculture, and they're, they're often advised by people who are trying to sell them things mm -hmm. and who say, this is the only way you can do it. Without this, you're not going to make it work. And yet there's examples all over the world of people who are making it work in a different way. Um, I get frustrated sometimes when I talk to um, members in the media who are you know, interested in this mm -hmm. issue who come at it with the, the basically the, that same attitude. That, oh, well, we need all, all the elements of modern agriculture, modern conventional agriculture, to actually grow enough food to feed everybody. And one of the big points of growing a revolution was that, no, if you actually go out and look at you know farms and subsistence farms in Africa and Central America to large commercial commodity crop operations in North America, you don't have to do it with the full-on you know, suite of conventional methods to be successful. Um, and I think there's a strong argument that we could make that, you know, we're at, at a global scale, we're not going to be able to continue with conventional agriculture if it keeps eroding and degrading the soil. There, there is an ultimate limit to that. Um, so how do we actually uh, get information out there? I think that, you know, writing books is one way to do it. And obviously, I encourage everybody to, you know, give every farmer you know the last couple books that Ann and I wrote and, and see if... Um, it may be of use to them in their thinking. Sure. We need, though, to be able to adapt regenerative methods to different crops in different regions. So there's 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 a legitimate room for research on how to actually do it in different places, and a need for demonstration farms, places farmers mm -hmm. can go to and look to to try and test out new ideas in their region, so that they're not betting the farm on trying this whole newfangled way of doing things. Because this this style of minimum disturbance, cover crops, and a diverse rotation really is a different style of farming, uh, and it, that can apply to both conventional systems and organic systems, um, and it's a different way to think about how to do it. Um, I think a lot of farmers may be a little hesitant to sort of like jump right into something without having seen it done at the scale of a full farm. So one of the things I advocate in Growing Revolution is the the establishing and running demonstration farms to figure out how to adapt these sort of high-level ideas to the on-the-ground reality of what to do on particular farms. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done, you know, in the policy world, in the academic world, and just in the terms of the peer-to-peer -peer farmer education. Mm -hmm. I, think one, I think one of the best, I saw lots of good examples of how, um, you know, farm days, um, farmer-led farmer conferences can really um, help spread these ideas. And I've seen huge change since I wrote that dirt book. Uh, it came out roughly 10 years ago. It was my first foray into this area. Um, and back then, nobody was talking about soil health. It was, you know, the idea that you could degrade soil health was even kind of a not on uh, conventional uh, conversation <laughs> board. Right. Um, there's now, I think, a, a growing movement among farmers, kind of a bottom-up-led movement for among people who've actually seen these ideas work in practice, um, realize that their need to be tailored to different regions, and the way to do that is to get farmers trying it and talking to each other and tinkering. And one of the characteristics I see among many of the leaders of the new soil health movement among farmers are that they're tinkerers. They like to experiment. They try something in one corner of a field one year and see if it works better, and if it does, do it on more of the field. 
Um, and that sort of spirit of tinkering, I think, is it is that's kind of in the spirit of scientists. That's kind of what scientists do with ideas. Um, so I'm pretty excited about the potential for uh, the ideas behind regenerative agriculture to uh, to take off in the next few decades. And I guess I'm fortunate enough as a geologist to think that if we could get these ideas to spread such that uh, conservation agriculture, as this new style might be called, um, eventually becomes the new conventional agriculture. If we did that in 20 or 30 years, that's a remarkably rapid transformation. Right, and that, that burden of proof is what we talk about all the time, is how do we get that burden of proof off of organic and back onto conventional agriculture that they need to prove that that methods are the, are the most productive. Yeah, and I, and, and I think that's a really a good way to put it. And that was one of, the, one of the, the main takeaways for me in writing Growing a Revolution is that when you look at the science that's been coming out in the last few decades, um, much of it centered around the role of microbial life in the soil and their beneficial relationship with crops. Um, the, the, the science we've been um, uh, harvesting, shall we say, in the last few decades is really lining up towards thinking that, well, there's a, there's a better way to do it than what we now call conventional. Um, and it involves a different way of thinking about it, thinking about the soil as something that has a health, thinking about soil life as something that we can cultivate and essentially put to work for us. Because if you've got trillions of organisms in a handful of soil, wouldn't you rather have them working to benefit your crops than you having to work to kill them? It's, it's simply much more efficient in the big picture to work with nature now that we understand more about how she actually runs the world. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but as you said, farmers, uh, uh, they're, they're in, and I'm generalizing totally here, and I don't want to insult our audience here, but yeah, we found that uh, their question, they're, there's a lot, they're asking a lot of great questions right now. They might be slow to change the conventional ag, but they're asking the right questions. And so that's, oh, yeah. that's what gives me Oh, hope. yeah. And I mean, one of the things I was incredibly impressed with, moving from the world of geology into the world of farming, is how innovative, intelligent, and um, interesting Farm, the farmers are that I visited. Um, you know, I was not trained to think of farming as a really interesting uh, right. vocation, but the more I got into it, the more I realized that it's a real challenge. To, if you think about it, sort of at the interface between what we've been learning in terms of science in the last few decades, um, the practical problems of how to actually keep machinery running, whether you're on a small farm or a really large farm, and having to integrate the sort of the economics of a business operation with the whole societal framework of regulations and, and, and um, economic pushes and pulls, it's a fascinating area. And um, I have yet to meet a farmer in, uh, who was not interested in the idea of leaving their land better off than they got it. Yep. Uh, and I think that's a, it's a powerful testament to um, how they see themselves as stewards of their land. And I think that the way that science can help advise them on that has shifted in the last few decades. And it's shifted in the direction that there's some really good ideas for how to actually rebuild soil fertility so that one might have confidence that one's great-grandchildren will inherit land that is better than it is today. That, uh, I, you're, you, you've hit the nail on the head. Everybody we survey, conventional or not, says that exact same thing. You know, nobody's in it. Uh, you don't go into farming to make a, a billion dollars. You just don't. Um, and, <laughs> That's uh, kind of like teaching college. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There, are, we made we stood in the wrong line in college. If that was our goal, you're exactly right. But uh, uh, but 
there's so much satisfaction in the in the career and the job, and and that's really what they that that draws people into farming is that that level. And and yeah, it's amazing how when I tell people I work for a farming company or farming magazine, I get kind of oh that sounds terribly boring. When I tell them I work for a sustainable farming magazine or one that's focused on sustainable agriculture and holistic treatment of animals, I get a lot of, wow, that's really cool. And it's amazing just in a couple different words what you can, uh, uh, what people's perceptions are out there of, of farming in general. So I think... Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and one of the things I'm optimistic about is that if you look at the potential for regenerative agriculture to serve as the nucleus for what you might think of as a rural-urban alliance to build healthy soils at a national level... The kind of things that a farmer could do to their land to build the organic matter and its fertility and thereby build the profitability of their farm, they're the same kind of things that you would do if you wanted to uh, put more carbon in the ground, say, to help with the climate problem. Right. We should be able to get a, a an urban-rural alliance built around the idea of prioritizing, reinvesting in the fertility of our land at a national level, because frankly, it's in everybody's interest. Right, right, and it's uh, yeah, and that there is less. Luckily, we got a long road ahead of education, so we need lots more books on this too. So there's there's some. Uh, <laughs> All right, well we'll we'll get busy on that. Yeah, uh, leaves me one of my last questions. What are you uh, What are you and working on? Or are you and Anne working on anything together? And kind of what's coming next for you guys? Yeah, well we're we're actually in the very um, uh, initial stages of working on the next book, uh, which we're working on together, and. It's trying to look at the question of whether regenerative farming practices, the kind of things we've just been talking about, are do do they in fact grow more nutrient dense, more nutrient rich food that's you know better for us? It's better for our health, and how much does that matter? So we're we're gearing up to, to visit farmers, researchers, and doctors that are um, have been working on various elements of that. As you might imagine, it's it's, it's a big complex uh, topic to try and tackle. But we're going to try and have a dive into it and see to what extent um, do those dots all line up and connect. And hopefully, hopefully by this time next year, we'll, we'll have it done. We can tell you more about it. But it looks like there's some pretty good evidence that you know, through the way that we treat the microbial life in the soil, that affects uh, the, how nutrients and phytochemicals get into and are built by plants. Uh, and that these are things that uh, medical science has shown that are actually are good for us as preventive medicine. So it's it, it's looking like these dots really do actually connect, and that what's good for the soil is actually good for us too. It's a, a heck of a note to end on. Um, if you want to learn more from David Montgomery, uh, their website's at dig2grow.com. The two is the number two, so that's dig2grow.com. Uh, you can find his handle at dig2grow as well out there on social media. Uh, my last question for you, David, to, to really end on today is you're speaking to a bunch of growers and farmers. Um, what do you want them to walk away with? Uh, can you can you help them be inspired to keep doing what they're doing? Boy, you know, if, if there's one job that everybody else in the world depends on people to do, it's farming. Um, you know, the, the whole foundation for civilization uh, rests on the idea that not everybody is going to have to grow their own food. So, you know, farming is one of the most important jobs there is. And I think it's one of the most challenging, but also I think these days exciting. There's, there's new and different ways to think about it that can be um, profitable both in a monetary sense, but also in terms of getting to know your land, understanding it, uh, 
the more you know about the soil and how it works, just the more fascinating it actually becomes. There's all kinds of new science behind it. Not all of it is sort of, you know, stuff that you can't learn um, unless you have a PhD. Uh, the hidden half of nature is our attempt to explain just how is it that soil life influences fertility and, and the health of your crops. Um, so I would, I would suggest people, you know, the more you look into this, the more you learn, uh, the more interesting it gets. And I would love to see us work towards trying to remake um, family farming into a very profitable enterprise at, for even relatively small farms. And I, I think the way to do that is through how we think about the soil. So I would encourage people, um, both uh, your, farming, your farming audience and also consumers, uh, to basically put some thought into the soil. We tend to take it for granted, yet it is a really important resource that when we understand it, it has fundamental implications for how we think about farming practices and what makes sense. And that could give people a good way to try and interpret what it is they're being advised and told by people who are perhaps trying to sell them on a way of doing things in order to sell them stuff as opposed to investing in the long-term interest of their farm. David, thank you for that. We really appreciate you having on. Uh, we can't wait to talk to you next year when your book is ready to go. Uh, coming up next, everybody, uh, we will have Ann Bickley on as soon as we get to say goodbye to David again. David, thank you for your time today. No worries, Ryan. Thanks. Pleasure to talk to you, and we'll be happy to share whatever we learn uh, in doing the next one. That was David Montgomery again, uh, which will lead us quickly into our next interview with Ann Bickley. Uh, thanks for hanging in there with us today. Uh, you're listening to Tractor Time, a podcast brought to you by Acres USA. Uh, you can learn more about Acres USA at acresusa.com. We're going to go right into our next interview with Ann Bickley. She's also the co-author of The Hidden Half of Nature. Uh, those who have read that book are probably pretty familiar with her and David's experience with solar and the learning curve in the soil, but we're going to get into that and we're going to learn how Anne went from a biologist, environmentalist, into a gardener, grower, and what she learned in the process. Uh, she's got a wide range of view in environmental affairs, so how she got there is a, is a really interesting uh, road and path. Uh, she has taken her own stake in her own health uh, and has looked at the soil to deliver that. So we're really happy to have Anne Bickley on today. Anne, welcome to Tractor Time Podcast. Yeah, hey, thanks a lot. Uh, where are you calling in from today? I am I'm calling in from the kitchen table, which is located in Seattle, Washington, and I'm looking out onto the garden and uh, can tell you that fall is definitely in the air here the the trees are starting to color up just a bit vegetable garden is uh kind of tired after our hot hot smoky summer that we had here and uh there's a pile of books over there let's see one of them's called radical regenerative gardening and farming and i got a quarterly review of biology article and well, a number of things like that just hanging around. That doesn't sound too bad. Our, our leaves in northern Colorado aren't quite changing yet, but they are up in the mountains. So I think we're, we're about a couple weeks behind you guys at this yeah. point. But, uh, uh, well, thanks for joining us. We really don't, uh, uh, we wanna really want to talk about soil today, and we really want to talk about the life in the soil today. Uh, but before we really get into the details, I want to see if we could take a step back and, and kind of zoom in during our conversation. Um, those of our listeners who have read The Hidden Half of Nature, um, 
we'll be familiar with Anne's story a little bit, but could you tell us about what first triggered your interest in soil health and, and your interest in soil life? Sure, yeah. Well, it's funny how challenges and, and problems can be a gift in a way. That was what happened, uh, at least with, with David and I, uh, when we started a home garden. And I have to, I have to fess up right here and say, I, I was the one who insisted on the garden. I'm a biologist. I have a bad case of plant lust, and I dragged my uh, geologist husband into this endeavor. And so some years ago when we bought our house in Seattle, there, one of the reasons we bought it was that there was a fairly large side yard, and uh, Norwegians had built our house, and uh, I, I guess I have to say, I'm not sure Norwegians are big-time gardeners, no offense to any Norwegians <laughs> out there, but our, our lot had hardly anything growing on it except for what we call the old-growth lawn. And so when I saw that, I saw a blank slate, and I thought, this is it. We're going to turn. We're going to turn this into a garden. So we got going. Long story short, the day the day came to finally get a whole lot of plants into the ground, and we're looking around at our soil because we had, you know, obviously pulled the lawn off of it, that old growth lawn, and I have to say, Ryan, we did not have dream dirt. We had <laughs> dead dirt, and that launched me into what I call the organic matter crusade, crusades. Now, I had, I had done some gardening, um, you know, as an adult, but not a whole lot because I was always moving around and I had little tiny patches of ground to work with. But I had always noticed that organic matter would always help the plants grow better. And so that, that was really what my gut told me was to go get organic matter. And so I tried... Uh, went around the neighborhood because I wanted things cheap or or free. And the one thing about Seattle is with everything that we have growing around here, there's a lot of leaves available in the fall. And we had put the garden in, again, not a a genius move on our part, but in the middle of August. And, uh, but that meant that fall was just around the corner and that meant trees would be dropping their leaves. Mm. And so I went and collected a lot of fallen leaves that was, one kind of organic matter. Seattle's a town full of coffee grounds, <laughs> coffee grounds, and uh, various other things. And I started to mix all of this together as mulches, and then on top of the soil. And a lot of people say, "Oh, well, didn't you dig it in?" It's like, no. I first of all, I had I had no time. That's really pretty backbreaking work mm-hmm. to dig all that stuff into the ground I just layered it on top and it worked it helped a lot by about the second or third summer after mulching in the you know every mm-hmm. fall and spring there was a thin 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 dark layer that was sitting on top of what had been our dead dirt and that basically was food for the soil microbiome and and so that sort of in a nutshell is, is how things got started with um, my interest in soil, soil health, and ultimately that experience was what started David and I off on uh, our idea for writing The Hidden Half of Nature. That, uh, that's fascinating. I, I think I listened somewhere in one of your talks that you, you, you described the, 
the soil as having the color of, um, or your dirt in your backyard, as you put it, as having the color of like khaki pants or something like that, that it was that brown and sandy? Do I, do I have that about right? Yeah, you do. It, it Because of the, the, the glaciers that at one time, you know, moved through the Puget Sound area, soils around here are generally just kind of a jumble. Um, you can be pretty assured of running into something that we call uh, glacial till, and that, that's a that's a layer in the soil that's as tough as concrete. And then on top, you know, you'll get glacial till, and then you'll also get compacted sand, sand the color of what you'd find on a, on a beach. And for sure, we had pockets of that around on our lot. And uh, uh, it's really hard to, I still remember the color of the soil, even after all these years, it was just it was. It was like sort of the color of khaki pants, but kind of a grayish, hmm. with grayish tones sort of sweeping through it, and different different textures. And yeah, it just, let's just put it this way, it was not an attractive color. It was not a color that made me go, oh yeah, this is just going to grow the greatest <laughs> garden in the world. Guessing it was quite the opposite, uh, in fact. Uh, um, it, it, you notice, though, and you wrote this in your book, that uh, you, you started creating soil faster than nature could, and that's kind of when you both stopped and went, how are we doing this, and how is this actually happening? Um, obviously, there's there's a, a bit of that, that you're applying nature to nature, and you're having nature do this work for you, but uh, um, the next step was you started thinking, why is this happening, and what is going on in the soil exactly to make this happen? Uh, where did you start, and, and how did you start looking at that? Yeah, it's... It's really something to stand on top of the ground in a garden or on your farm and you look around and, and you ask yourself, how is this, you know, what is really going on here? What, how is it, and in my case, how is it that all of these plants are growing and I'm not doing really anything more except my mulching? My, and none of these mulch mixes were ever the same because none of my ingredients were ever the same and I never mixed, you know, exactly the same proportion together. And that, this was all, we were asking these questions and thinking, you know, more deeply about what is it that makes a plant grow around the time that the, uh, sort of the, the, the public public debut of microbiome science was coming out. And so this was, you know, this was about oh, six, seven, eight years ago. And much of that research had been focused on the human body, the human microbiome. But there's also been a long history before the term microbiome sort of even came about. Uh, plant scientists have long, long been looking at microorganisms and microbial communities in the soil because we know on on land at least that soil is the biggest reservoir of microbial life that we have uh, it's a bit like a you know a terrestrial ocean if you will it's 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 just where most microorganisms um, live and so we started looking into well what are all these what are all these microbes doing in the soil? I mean, we know, I think everybody, everybody gets that there's a decomposition process going on, you know, fungi mm -hmm. especially. You know, you can put your uh, wood chips. I'm, I like using wood chips a lot as a mulch ingredient. Mm -hmm. Occasionally, I'll leave a pile sitting around too long, and I'll 
go and dig into that pile and I'll see all of these white thread-like mm-hmm. uh, things and those are parts of, of fungi. So that's just one example of um, a you know a, uh, the decomposition process and how other life forms are involved in breaking down organic matter. So we <clears throat> I think everybody understands that but but what really captivated me was learning about um, what a, a sort of a fantastic world there is around the roots of a plant. And plant scientists have a, a, a term for this, as they do for many, many things. Um, but it's one of these terms that makes sense if you sort of break down the etymology. That area right around the roots is called the rhizosphere. Mm. And rhizo, R-H-I-Z-O, it, that means root. And sphere, of course, we all can picture that. That's an area. That's a specific place. So in the rhizosphere, uh, this is what really blew me away. The, the populations of microbes in the rhizosphere are way, way, way higher than the number and diversity of microbes outside of the rhizosphere in the soil at large. And so that, you sort of ask yourself, well, what's going on? Why, are all these, why would all these microbes be hanging around um, the roots of a plant? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Mm-hmm. Because microbes cause diseases, you know? Right. And, and how is it that I've got these thriving plants and I couldn't, of course, see with my naked eye, but I had to, you know, take it, take it on word that, yeah, there's microbes all over these roots and in the rhizosphere. And really what you have in the rhizosphere, and there's a, a parallel in the human gut, is what I call a biological bazaar. There mm-hmm. are ceaseless trades going on down there um, in the biological bazaar beneath our feet where plants are, are using their monopoly on photosynthesis to produce all of these compounds and, and molecules. About 40%, it's estimated, 40% of a plant's photosynthetic energy goes toward producing compounds called exudates that it, it pushes out of its roots, sort of like picture roots maybe a little bit like a faucet, and a, and a plant can turn that faucet on or it can turn it off or it can, can also put different things in that faucet. Hmm. And that... When I learned all about what a plant's green body is capable of and what it does, I went, aha, that's why all these microbes are around these roots, because they are lapping up these exudates flowing out of a plant's roots. And what's in these exudates, it's, it's a vast smorgasbord of nutrients. There's sugars, there's carbohydrates, there's lipids or fats, and there's amino acids, which are the building blocks of protein. So this is sort of, you know, a lot like what we've got over there in the refrigerator right, right it now. sounds like food. You're exactly food. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's why microorganisms are so dense around the roots of a plant. And that, that just can, you know, that, that is an endless source of fascination for me is thinking about what is going on beneath the ground that I can't see but that is the whole reason that we've got this, you know, thriving garden around us today. Right, and and we're wondering why this is so important. Is uh, uh, and I know a lot of our listeners already know this, but 
so many of times we get taught, especially beginner gardeners, that the applications we put on our plants are actually, you know, that we're told to put on our plants are actually kill the life in the soil and actually destroy that life in the soil. And we don't have that education base of a lot of people to even know what they are doing to the soil when they do apply those uh, more toxic technologies on their, on their soil. So knowing that we have this natural process to bring these nutrients into the plant where we don't have to do that is, is really quite a breakthrough overall. Um, would you say this is new science or just science that we're rediscovering for the first time? Well, I really think it's both, Ryan. Um, we know uh, on the new end of things, what, what has been such a huge um, boon to microbiomes and what has allowed scientists to, to study microbiomes and, and communicate everything that they're learning is that all of this genomic technology that's mm-hmm. out there and that, which is to say, uh, all of these different ways that we now have of looking at the genes, mm-hmm. the genes that uh, you can find in a one-celled bacterium or the genes of uh, fungi, or genes of a virus. This all tells us, and it's very, I have to back up, this is a, it's a very useful way to look at the microbial world because if you think about um, botanists, let's say, or even if you're not a botanist, Mm -hmm. if you're a gardener or a farmer, you know how different all your plants look. Mm -hmm. And that used to be the basis for naming things long, long ago. And so that's the text, that's the, the, the taxonomy that tells us, you know, this maple tree is an acer whatever, and the birch tree is a betula, and corn, and so on. Everything has its own place. And so we've really, really relied on our sense of vision to classify life. But when it comes to the microbial world, um, nearly everything my, microbial um, is one cell. So there you're sort of stuck. It's like, hmm. Everything's one cell big. You know, you can't see these things with the naked eye. When you do see them under magnification, it's not, there's not really features that, that you use in the, in the way that you would, say, use the shape of a leaf to classify a plant. And so what has happened is in looking into the genomes of the microbial world, we see that that is the key to really... Um, who they are, but more importantly, what it is they can do. And that's been, um, that's been hugely eye-opening because when you can look into the genome, you can tell, for example, um, what, what these organisms can do. There's a, a great example from um, the human microbiome, and that is they've done a lot of work on the bacteria that live in the colon and are finding that the genome of of bacteria in the colon actually can make enzymes far, far, that far, far exceed what our own, um, our own genes make in terms of enzymes that can break down food. And so in a way, the human body has kind of outsourced this job of, of breaking down food to the microbiome because their genome is able to code for the proteins that are become these enzymes to break everything down. And I think you really have to think of the soil as really the digestive tract of earth because indeed, right, that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. We have the wonderful botanical world which is dropping all of its 
no longer has need of its leaves or it's shedding off dead roots or, you know, a tree has died. All of that organic matter falls onto the soil. And, and if, we are, if we're smart about it, um, we will not be killing soil life because for every kind of plant tissue that lands on the soil, there's a microbe waiting there hmm. for it to begin decomposing it to kick off the, the, the nutrient cycle. So genomic science is what has really allowed us to understand far, far better what it is that all these microorganisms are doing. So that's the new science. The old science is that we've long known that plants, at least, are, are just coated inside and out with microbes. And while we didn't always know what they did, there's a really classic experiment done by a, a German plant scientist back around the 1900s. His name's um, Lorenz Hiltner. I believe that's the name. And, and it, it, it's a, one of these great experiments where they took plants and they, this is, you know, in a, in a laboratory setting, and they sterilized uh, the soil on, say, one half of a box. They planted plants in there, and they left the other part of the, the box with the soil in it unsterilized. So, the, so one side has soil life, the other side has no soil life. And they grow plants in this soil, and then they introduce a pathogen into each side of this box, sterilized and unsterilized soil, and lo and behold, what is found over and over again, this is probably one of the most replicated experiments there is, is that the plants growing in the sterilized soil easily succumb to the pathogen and just die off. Plants on the other side, no, they don't all survive, but, but far, far fewer of them, certainly not all of them die. Uh, they're able to you know, survive the onslaught of the pathogen and, and continue growing. So. This was a way of knowing, oh, these, these microbes down in the soil, they might be doing something for the plants. That's, uh, that's fascinating. I'm going to take one quick break and just remind our listeners they're listening to Ann Bickley and Tractor Time. Uh, Ann is a biologist and author, and we have been talking about the new science that's going into soil life. Uh, we're beginning to connect that life in the soil to life in our gut and understanding the relationships to between those two uh, really important uh, factors. Um, what, what do you feel like we're on the verge of learning in, or what, what are we so close to breaking through that you're excited about out there? Are there things happening right now that we, we probably know as fact, but we're proving them and, you, and you're, you're waiting for that moment? Or you know, what, what's happening right now in the fields that you're looking at? Yeah, I think we're just continuing you know, this onion of the microbial world I'm not sure anybody knows, Ryan, exactly how many layers there are sure. on this, but I will tell you, it's a lot. And, and with each sort of peel back of these layers, there's, it, it becomes ever more evident how vitally important um, microbiomes are to life on Earth. And I was been doing some research actually for for an article for you guys excellent on on uh we're calling it you know because something about the, you know the ancient wisdom for modern times or ancient wisdom of microbes mm -hmm. and so anyway i was i was just looking 
into you know, how many microbes are there anyway? What, what, do, what do scientists know about number of species of, mm-hmm. of microbes? <clears throat> and it's, <clears throat> excuse me, it's, it's, it's pretty astonishing. Um, it's estimated that there's um, <clears throat> somewhere around one to six billion species on Earth. Wow. <clears throat> and we don't know, scientists don't know all of these because they haven't been, you know, thoroughly studied and put into a taxonomic category and so on. But we, they still know generally, okay, there's, you know, we're making assumptions about how many, uh, for example, symbiotic bacteria live in an insect. And if there's X number of insects, we're going to, you know, multiply that by 10, and that's going to tell us generally how many uh, symbiotic bacteria are out there. And What's amazing is that there's, it's, the estimate is for about 1.75 billion bacterial species that live on this planet, all, you know, mm-hmm. oceans, land, everywhere. And that the other number that I was looking at to just sort of get a handle on that is, oh, well, how many of those, how many of those bacteria might be pathogenic, might be causing us some problems? And the research on, on that is that the number of pathogenic bacteria is probably around somewhere around 500 is, is wow. what's thought. So when you compare 500 pathogens to 1.75 billion, it kind of tells you <laughs> what most of these microorganisms are about. And what what is really fundamental is that most microorganisms, be it bacteria or fungi, they're mostly living a symbiotic lifestyle. Mm. Most microbes are not pathogens. Most microbes are in partnership with some other kind of life form, a plant, you know, a fish, a bee, a worm, a, a whatever. And th- this to me, uh, this to me is sort of like this, this isn't just like one light bulb that's getting turned on. This is like a whole room full of flashing flashing lights, some of which are red because so many of our practices in, in farming and gardening, um, you know, agriculture, medicine, we're doing things that harm microbiomes. And in doing that, we're sort of undercutting our, our health, the health of our crops and our livestock. And so this is sort of, I, I feel like, the microbiome science, we are, and I'm certainly, you know, a lot of listeners of this podcast, anyone who's ever, um, you know, grown a plant and, and, and done so with, you know, organic or, you know, very low chemical input methods, you know, you know how hard um, that can be, but you also can tell what happens, whether you knew it or not, that when you start feeding the soil life, these plants start doing better. They're better. They, they, they grow better. Most importantly, they're way more resilient and resistant, resistant to, um, to diseases. To these days, the crazy weather that that we get, whether that be you know hot or cold or uh, being hit by a deluge or no rain at all. So these are just some of the things that I think um, are really starting to open open things up and I think where it's pushing all of us is you know 
we have all these names for different generations, you know, Gen X, the baby boomers, and so on. I think we, we, what we all really need to be thinking about is whether you're 8 or you're 80, we're the regen generation. Mm. That is what all of us need to be right now because we need to be using the resources on this planet way more um, effectively and efficiently than we are, and that is where I see microbiomes being of of huge, huge use and importance. That, that's uh, well put. Uh, the regen generation, that certainly is the task at hand, at the very least. Uh, um, the You, you kind of talked about it a little bit, and I think we can get, get somewhere, break through this a little bit. Uh, soil microbes have bad public relations. They have bad PR, right? We've, we've learned about them uh, <laughs> through only the ones that kill us or, or make us really sick. Um, you, you teach and you speak about this a lot. What approach have you tried that works the best to help educate folks about the issue and get beyond that, that fear that they have? Yeah. I think I, what, what I tell people is, is kind of two, two main things. The microbial world is mercurial, meaning it, is, it, it doesn't behave how we would like it to, and it doesn't you know, behave how we think it should. I mean... How can it be that these tiny, the tiniest creatures on Earth can both kill us, but also help us a lot? And in fact, without without microbiomes, without my microbiome, I would I would be profoundly, profoundly unhealthy, probably on the verge of death. And so it's hard for somebody to hold in their mind at the same time this thing is good mm-hmm. and this thing is bad. And there's an abundance of evidence on both sides of those that tell us, you know, why, when, and where microbes can be bad and why, when, and where microbes are good. So I try to tell people, you need to hold this duality in your mind. It's not, a, it, it, it's the furthest from a black and white situation that, that you can probably get. This is, this is all about context when it comes to the microbiome and what it is how it is they interact with our lives. So that's one thing, is hold the duality in your mind all the time when it comes to the microbial world. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing, and this is, this is what sort of really opened my eyes big to the microbiome, was that I, I have all, you know, since I was a little kid and, and, and then going through college, you know, my... Um, area of study was natural history and biology and I've just been a fan of nature for a long long time but it's been the parts of nature of course that we can see it's like wow it's the bird through the binoculars who's that or you know my bad case of plant lust here I love the parts of nature I can touch that I can see I can smell and I can eat Mm. and I had of course I was aware of 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 microbes but I'd never thought about them much beyond yeah, fungi decompose wood, and yeah, they help us with beer and bread and a lot of foodstuffs. But in doing the research for the hidden half of nature, when I, when I sort of came to grasp that these creatures are um, very, very much a part of our own body, and they are very much a part of the green body of plants in ways that are so intimate in ways that have been long, long, long running, I started to see myself as a part of nature like I had never really mm-hmm. grasped before. And, and certainly I had, not, I had not sort of thought of myself as 
oh, you mean there's at least as many microbial cells on and in me as, you know, the own, my, my own cells, those, you know, those that I got from my mom and my dad. And that, that part of it was very motivating to help me realize that, you know, there's, there's nature all over and on us, and it's nature that makes our, our bodies work, that helps us digest our food, that uh, digest our food, that even affects our mood. And so when I started to see myself as this um, sort of an ecosystem nested within, say, the ecosystem of the garden, the ecosystem that is here in Washington State, and on and on and on. It's this very, it's like this nested set of those Russian dolls, Mm -hmm. and it's all connected. And that, that is the other thing that I try to impress upon people, because I think once you realize that your body, your body is nature, you start to think, I hope, more deeply about what it is you're pulling into your body. And if you can think about the farm or a garden that way too, you have to ask, well, what is it that I'm putting on the soil? Or what is it that I'm putting on these plants? Because it's everything comes home to roost in one way or another for better and worse. And so that's, that's how I try to um, just share with people how they might think about plants and their body and microbiomes and most importantly the connection between those things and their farming and gardening practices. That's really interesting. I, uh, uh, how many times do we introduce environmentalism as human health as the first introduction? You know that if somebody wants to be involved in the environment um, we don't talk about our bodies being part of the environment you know yeah. and, and, and our relationship. I, I really think that's a strong uh, strong educational point. Um, Taking, yeah. st- starting to zoom back out just a little bit, um, when you think about the community of farmers and growers listening in today, um, you know, a farmer sitting there going, I know I need to do all this, but what should I be looking for and, and how do I apply this on a huge commercial uh, you know, scale? I'm on this one track, I want to get over to the biological track. Um, is, the, is the science ready to support that those initiatives at this point? Do we know enough to work with farmers on and to start to introduce this into our food supply on a, on a commercial scale? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I think just, um, you know, one, one bit of evidence for that is it seems like every, uh, you know, I'm not going to say every week, but I will say, you know, at least several times a year I, I, you hear something about, Oh yeah, and the fastest growing segment of the grocery industry is organic. Mm-hmm. So that tells you that there's organic, there's farmers out there who are growing food organically and they are bringing product to market and that the methods and techniques, which I will say, um, you know, there's been quite a kerfuffle with the National Organics Program lately, but set that aside for a moment and you look at the organic farming movement mm-hmm. as a whole in this country and the, the way certification got going and, and, and so on. And that, so we're 2018, so, you know, we're 50 years out on, on showing that organic production can grow food and can get it to markets and so on. What I think is um, 
what I what I think where that's leading us that's sort of one end of let's call it agriculture is the organic end and then it, you, you know you move along that continuum and you get clear to the other end which is what we call of course conventional and there's conventional um, farmers and David wrote of it this is the subject of the book his book growing a revolution bringing mm-hmm. our soil back to life and what that showed was that yeah conventional farmers can pay attention to soil health too and they can do so by uh, I, I think every every farmer or garden innately inherently knows yes the soil is a living thing mm-hmm. right you right. dig around in it they just you know that so then you have to say okay if it's a living thing, and if we know that robust, diverse, abundant microbial populations down there in the biological bazaar are communicating with our crops and our plants in positive ways, what are we going to do to feed that soil life? What, are, what can I, you know, so you get somebody to that level of understanding, and, you know, farmers know how to plant things. Farmers know how to grow plants, and so that's then where you can start moving, I think, into something like, cover crops or whatever kind of farm you've got, me- adopting methods that keep organic, organic matter generated on site, whether that's from plant or plants or animals, ideally both, you keep that on site because that is the mana, so to speak, for soil life. That is, that is the, key, the key thing. Uh, I'm just backing up one minute mm-hmm. to to, you know, how you educate sort of people about the importance of microbiomes. The other thing I always say is this. These are living organisms, and all life, no matter if you're one cell or 10,000 cells or a trillion cells, we all share one thing in common, and that is that we need nourishment. Right. We must eat, and that is the key to soil health, is ensuring that we are feeding all of those organisms that, are running and a part of the, the biological bazaar. And so that's where cover crops and mulching, retaining organic matter and getting that into your, um, getting that into your crop rotations. And likewise, if you've got animals, to be feeding them as uh, diverse a mm-hmm. diet um, as possible because they too, ruminants especially, right? We know mm-hmm. this, that the, the, the cow is not actually, or the goat or the whatever, they're not the ones who are actually digesting all of that cellulose-laden um, grass, assuming you're feeding them, you know, grass. Um, it's their microbiome. Mm. It's the bacteria that are producing the enzymes that are digesting all of that grass. And so the bacteria are taking their cut, so to speak, um, of, of the cow diet, and then they're kicking out metabolites and waste products, which actually are one of the really important um, uh, nutrients for the cow, for the cow itself. So I, I think it's, um, I think it's really understanding the nutrient cycling that happens in a garden or farm, and thinking about how your practices are intersecting with that cycling. Are they perturbing it or scrambling that cycling, or are they? Um, in a way, sort of, you know, jumping on and um, enhancing that and using that. I, I, I sometimes picture, you know, when you see little kids that are, um, they have a rope and they're swinging it. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's one person on each end and then kids are, are moving through. 
it's sort of like that. It's like this rope is swinging, and that's the nutrient cycling. And what you want to do is you want to jump into that nutrient cycling uh, and just keep going, keep jumping, jumping, mm-hmm. jumping, and providing your part. It, it's when you crash into the rope or get your feet tangled up in the rope that you sort of mess up the whole, the whole thing. So it's, it's very much about you know, being in sync with how nature is, is cycling nutrients. That's fascinating. Yeah, that uh, uh, is it. Is it allowed to ask a biologist a chemistry question? Can I ask oh, you? Oh yeah, that? of course. <laughs> I mean, heck, a lot of biology is chemistry. Uh, well, that's why I figured that, and so I, you know. And lot- I'm, but that said, I'm no chemist. But fire away. <laughs> the and this is probably a more philosophical question, but we have a lot of uh, uh, we teach the Albrecht system a lot with our books and. Uh, a lot of that is chemistry based obviously on um, magnesium and calcium ratios and these kind of things and and I think I read all the time is if once you get the chemistry in place the biology will follow um, I get a lot of flack from that too from people going that's just not quite right uh, what's your take when I say something like that that if you get the chemistry right the biology will follow what 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 comes to your head yeah it's funny because I I've said and I've heard other people say you get the biology right and everything else falls <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and here's the deal: um, we it's way easier for us to think about things in their separate little parts and piles right. because once you break something down, you see how it fits together and you gain a broader understanding of something. And that's where sort of chemistry and the, the whether you're the, the you get the chemistry right and everything follows, or get the biology right mm-hmm. and everything follows. The fact of the matter and the real truth is that these are really tightly coupled and integrated things. So what we really probably all need to be um, saying, Ryan, mm-hmm. is when you get the biology and the chemistry synced up so that each is complementing you know, the strength of the other, that's when things that's when things line up and that's when, you know, if you build it, you know, they will come. Because the other thing I often think about, you know, I look out in the garden and, and of course, I'm in love with, um, at the moment, I've got this one tree. And, mm-hmm. and I think, oh, my lovely tree, it's so wonderful. And then, a, you know, earlier in the summer, it was the bees that were coming to this certain mm-hmm. patch of flowers. And, and really, when it comes right down to it, the botanical world is packages of chemicals flying off of their leaves, you know, flowing out of their flowers. Um, coming out of their roots and it's that chemistry that is the language that plants use to communicate with each other with their microbiome and with the environment at large and so chemistry is is you know it's very important on that front but then when you think about the life the biology part of it it's like well these plants are not going to be able to manufacture all of these chemicals if the biology isn't working, if we don't have a functioning soil microbiome where, where the plant is, is getting all the nutrients it needs, whether that's phosphorus or magnesium or what have you. Microbes mediate so much of the nutrient flow out of the soil into plants as well as um, manufacturing microbial metabolites in the soil that the plant takes up that allow it to be a plant uh, that we, we really need to, I think, try to hold these 
you know, the chemistry and the biology together in our minds. And that's, that's difficult in modern times because um, chemists have been able to make so many synthetic chemicals, some of which do harm, some of which do good. Again, mm-hmm. it's that duality thing that chemistry has sort of gotten a, you know, a bad rap. Um, and so you just, you, you just, again, need to hold in your mind, you know, where did that chemical come from? What is its purpose? You know, was it made in a laboratory and put into a box or a package? Or was it made by a living organism and, it, and you know, thereby being a very important part of that organism's biology? It's, uh, uh, I appreciate that answer. I really, I, that's very helpful. Um, I like that a lot. The i uh, got a couple more questions for you if you got the time today. Uh, sure. And, uh, the one we talked about through emails, we were setting this up, that we talked about really the end product and the end result is better human health. That's really the, the goal and the measurable that we're, we're putting behind all this. But we are in a uh, society and in a world that always looks to technology to develop that solution for us. Um, is there a role for microbes in the conversation when technology dominates and how do we get microbes to be considered technology if that's what it takes at some point uh, yeah yeah that's a real, that's a good question yeah yeah and I was I was thinking about this and I think the way how I think about it is that technology is not always uh, the hardware of a computer right. or the software of a computer or a device or a machine that can diagnose and measure and, and do all kinds of things. Microbes are a pretty darn good example of technology, if you ask me. They're already technological. And the, the reason I, I say that, um, they're, they're sort of nature's technology, if you will. So to, to sort of draw an analogy, you know, we often talk about codes, you know, the computer code that makes the computer do this thing or that thing. And with the microbial world, I talked about all of those genes that they have, and genes are a code. We know there's these base, certain arrangement of <coughs> um, base pairs in a DNA molecule eventually ripples out and becomes a, um, a molecule of some sort. So the DNA is the code for a molecule, and that molecule has a function. And so this was nature's technology all along. We just never really called it that or recognized it as such. And so there's all of these human terms and this way of doing and thinking ways and this way of doing uh, things and ways that we have of thinking about them where we think we're, we're the ones who have the monopoly on technology or infrastructure or civilizations. And, and yet I could give you, you know, an example from nature where, and I just, I just you know, did with mm-hmm. the, the DNA molecule, but infrastructure is another one. And it's like, what are you talking about? There's an immense infrastructure running through the ground that we stand on all around us, you know, and they... There was that article that came out a while back. I can't even remember who wrote it, but it was the world, worldwide web of mm-hmm. mycorrhizal fungi. Right. It's not the interwebs that increasingly, apparently, are full of fake news. Right. <laughs> the, 
the, the worldwide, you know, wood web, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. this is an information highway that we should really be taking a look at and emulating in terms of how nodes are nodes are connected and how information is flowing and those kinds of things. So I I think there's definitely a, a place for the microbial world in our technological world. And the key to it, I think, is instead of overlaying our idea of technology on nature, I think we would do far better if we if we if we sought to you know understand how it is that this natural technology and infrastructure is working so that we can leverage that for you know what we need for you know our civilization and our way of life not not disrupted or not think that we can control it or not think you know so often really more the direction is we need to eradicate and it's mm. like it was Aldo Leopold who said you know Whenever we tinker, something along the lines of whenever we we tinker with nature, we should not ever, ever be throwing any of her cogs and wheels and pulleys and so on away. We just don't know what they do. And if we throw them away, it's very, very hard to recover whatever it was that they were doing. That's a, um, a fantastic reminder, and I think a pretty good way to wrap up our talk today, uh, we're really lucky to have Ann Bickley on today. She's an author of The Hidden Half of Nature, The Microbial, Microbial Roots of Life and Health uh, with David Montgomery. Um, and what's, uh, if people want to learn more about what you're doing or uh, uh, what projects you're working on, uh, could you update them on, on kind of what's next? Yeah, sure. We're, um, we're out there on the interwebs, and <laughs> our goal is not to spread fake news. It's to share with people... Um, you know, our epiphanies and discoveries and information um, about farming, about soil, about gardening, and about the human body, um, and, and where all of these things intersect. And so the website is dig2grow, and, and it's dig and then the number two, grow.com, digtogrow.com. And I'd say we're most active um, on Twitter, and the handle there is at dig2grow, same thing, a number two in there. And uh, we, we also um, uh, do travel around and to conferences and do talks and presentations. Love talking about this stuff, as listeners might have gathered. Um, let's see, some, a couple things coming up. If there's anybody who uh, is going to be hitting the no-till on the Plains mm-hmm. conference, that's one that's coming up in January 2019, mm-hmm. a little before that. Um, the biodynamic community is having their conference in um, November in Portland, Oregon, and I'll be speaking there. And I, I'm, uh, the biodynamic community, although I have always been aware of it, mm-hmm. I'm learning more and more about it. And I think, I think it's a really interesting philosophy that they have about mm-hmm. how they farm and garden and produce products. So I'm looking forward to meeting more of those folks there. And then we're doing a, a couple of things, um, some food and farming conferences. Um, October will be in Texas with the, I think it's the Food, uh, Farm and Ranch Freedom, I think. Oh, the, FARFA, the FARFA conference down there? Okay. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. Uh, FARFA, yeah. Judith was our last guest on the podcast. So. Oh, hey, super. <laughs> I'll have to go. I'll have to look that up then, oh, yeah. yeah. And then we'll be out in Virginia uh, early December at a farm-to-table farm to table conference. Okay. 
Great, yeah. great. Well, it sounds like there's plenty of opportunities if folks want to to uh, uh, to attend and listen to um, you guys. And I know we're working on with you and David to see if we can get you scheduled into one of our conferences in 2019 and yeah. beyond as well. So uh, again, if people want to learn more, it's digtogrow.com. Their handle out on Twitter is digtogrow. The number is it's the number two uh, in the middle of that. Uh, we'll have all that on our story and on our website as well if people want to go there to find these references as well. Um, Ann Bickley, uh, thank you so much for joining us today, and best of luck in your research and your writing and your teaching out there. Yeah, thank you. And, Ryan, we've talked about so much today. I want to I sum it up in six words for listeners. If they're like, oh, that was just all so crazy. What are they talking about? Here's what we're talking about, folks. Please do. Mulch your soil inside and out. All right, that's the takeaway. Mulch your soil inside and out. That's bringing it home. Uh, thank you, Ann. We really appreciate it. All right, thank you. And that wraps up our 20th episode of the Tractor Time podcast brought to you by Acres USA. Thank you for joining us for both interviews with David Montgomery and Ann Bickley. You can find all their books at acresusa.com. You can look for them and their articles in Acres USA magazine coming up. And uh, we hope to get them at our events in 2019 or at least uh, make sure they're back on the podcast one way or the other. Uh, if you want to learn more about them, uh, find our website at EcoFarmingDaily where you can find this podcast. You can find this podcast at AcresUSA.com or you can find this podcast anywhere in the Apple Store. Just search for Acres USA. Thank you again and have a great rest of your week.